You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Been here the past couple of weeks, and you know that we've been walking through what are essentially the, the, the five basic theological principles of the Protestant Reformation that happened now 500 years ago in uh, Western Europe. Um, and so, so far what we've discussed is three of those principles, sola scriptura, scripture alone, um, sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone. And uh, all of these principles bubbled to, sur- to the surface in this time in church history because there were questions uh, that, that had come to bear surrounding the ultimate authority for Christians, uh, the method by which Christians are saved and the means by which Christians take hold of that salvation. And in those three very uh, brief phrases or uh, collection of words, uh, we have what is essentially the reformer's response to those questions. And so their response was to say that there is only one ultimate authority, that that is Scripture alone, that there is only one method of salvation, that that is God's grace alone, and that there is only one means of gaining access to that salvation, and it is faith alone. And this morning we'll talk about an, another major point of debate during the Reformation, which was the question of, of mediation. Who mediates between God and man? Who mediates? Mediate meaning to bring about agreement or to to make reconciliation. Who, who does that between God and man? Now, the Roman church during that day held that Jesus did in fact mediate between God and man, but he was not the only mediator. So also did Mary mediate and the saints mediated and the church officers, the popes, the bishops, and the priests, and even In some cases, fellow Christians acted as mediators, especially if your soul was in purgatory, in which your family and your Christian friends could pray on your behalf, could mediate between you and God so that your time in purgatory might be reduced and that you might join God in the fullness of heaven. And so in the Reformation, the Reformers were attempting to call the church back to faith in Christ as the sole mediator between God and man. And so we'll be talking this morning about solus Christus, or Christ alone. And it's in Christ alone that we have all that we need in order to be reconciled with God. He acts as our mediator. And the reason that we're discussing solus Christus today Uh, as sort of the fourth in a series of five, is because really everything that we have talked to or talked about up to this point coalesces, gathers together, and culminates, climaxes, right, in the person and work of Jesus. And so Scripture, grace, and faith all emphasize for us this morning that salvation as a whole is in Christ alone. 
And so this morning we'll talk about the fact that Jesus is unique, that he is exclusive, and that he is sufficient. And so let's pray and we'll jump into our uh, word this morning. Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to be gathered together. Lord, you are gracious and you are good to us this morning. And Father, we thank you that in your word we come to see and know and understand what you have done on our behalf in Jesus. And we thank you, God, that our salvation this morning is dependent solely on your grace expressing itself to us in Jesus that we now lay hold of sheerly by the faith that you have also given to us. And so, God, this morning we rejoice that there is no work to be done, that we are saved in light of what Jesus and Jesus alone has done on our behalf. And so, Father, we, we affirm that with our mouths, God, but we ask this morning that your, your Spirit would take that from our minds and our mouths down into our hearts so that we might, at the very core of who we are, not only believe really and truly that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but, God, that we would rest there. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've said this every week and I'm going to say it again. The first thing that we want to do each week as we unpack these solas is to first go to God's Word. And there's uh, a few reasons for that. Obviously, the first week we talked about how God's Word is our ultimate authority. And so if God's Word is our ultimate authority, we want to go there and allow it to tell us what is true. But the second reason that we want to do that is I, I, I want to clearly show for us that these theological principles that bubbled to the surface in this, uh, in this upheaval, this time of upheaval in the Christian church's history, these principles are in fact just biblical principles. So they're not simply living in the realm of theology, but they're theological principles that are born from, born out of, drawn out of God's Word. And so when we talk about the Reformation, what we're talking about is, is not so much an innovation in the realm of theology, so much as it's a return to the foundation of our theology, which is God's Word. And with regards to Solus Christus, or Christ alone, in particular, Luther said this. Martin Luther said that Jesus Christ is the center and the circumference of the Bible. Meaning that who Jesus is and what Jesus did in his death and resurrection is the fundamental content of all of Scripture. And Luther also said this, We cannot grasp or exhaust Christ and his eternal righteousness with one sermon or thought. For to learn to appreciate Jesus is an everlasting lesson which we will not be able to finish either here in this life or in the life to come. And the reason I wanted to read that quote for this for us this morning is we need to realize that in the next 20 minutes or so 
that we have to talk about Christ alone, we cannot and will not exhaust the many ways in which Jesus is grand and glorious for us this morning, in which he is kind and merciful, in which he is just and long-suffering, in which he is gracious, and on and on and on we could go. And yet the reality is that this morning we have to find some place to stop. And so know that there will probably be things unsaid that could be said about Jesus and his work. And yet we're going to try to take as big a bite as we can. And so let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I, I wanted us to read Colossians chapter 1 just because it, it frames a lot for us. But we're going to spend the bulk of our time just dissecting this these, these two sentences here, or this one sentence in these two verses. And so this is what 1 Timothy chapter 2 says. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so Paul, writing to his protege Timothy, is telling Timothy um, not, not only... Uh, how to be a good leader in the church and what to teach in order to remain faithful to Jesus and what he came to do. Um, but he's also telling him, again, the content of that teaching, right? What he is to tell to those under his charge. And in writing to him, we, we, we read several things that are important for us this morning. And the first thing is this, there's, there's only one God. Now, this should be pretty self-explanatory, right? Like, I, I don't really need to go into any depth here. When it says that there is only one God, Paul means that there is only one God. But then he goes on to say that there is also only one mediator between that one God and man. And so there's only one person that mediates between the one God and man, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so we have singular God and we have singular mediator, Jesus. Singular person through whom man's relationship with God can be reconciled, can, be, can, can return to agreement if we want to take some synonyms of, of mediate to describe what God has done. And it goes on to say that not only is there only one God and not only is there only one mediator between God and man, but that as our mediator, Jesus what? Gave himself as a ransom for all. And so as the one mediator between God, the one God and man, Jesus gives his life as a ransom. And uh, most of us probably know, again, right, the definition of Ransom, what is a ransom? It's a, it's a price that is paid in order to redeem something that once belonged to you, right? And so what Paul is telling Timothy is that Jesus paid the ransom price in order to release us from our slavery and to set us free into the glory and wonder of his household, his keeping. And he has done this, again, for who? For all who would believe. As Galatians says, whether we are Jew or Gentile, whether we are male or female, whether we are slave or free, the ransom that Jesus paid is for all who would believe. And then it goes on to tell us that all of this 
happened at the proper time, that this was given to us at the proper time. And in saying this, what Paul is telling us is that God has always planned for this to be the case. God has always planned that there would be one God, namely himself, and that there would be one mediator between the sinful man and the holy God, and that that mediator would be his own son, Jesus Christ, and that as our mediator, he would give his life as a ransom, and that all of it would happen at the proper time, according to his plan. And so God has always intended for this to be the reality. And so Jesus is not a surprise to God. Jesus' mediating work is not a surprise to God. It was his plan all along. And so we can describe Jesus and what he's done, I think, in, in three very simple words based on this text. Right? Jesus is unique. He's the one son of the one God and there is no other. Jesus is exclusive, meaning he's the only mediator between God and man. And there is no other means by which our relationship with God can be mediated. And then third and finally, Jesus is sufficient, meaning his mediating work, the ransom that he paid was sufficient, meaning there's no remaining balance in the account of our ransom. He's paid it all. It's sufficient. Jesus is unique. Jesus is exclusive. And he is sufficient. He's enough. Now, like we've said every week, we could end right here and go home at 14 minutes and 20 seconds. But like every week thus far, um, we're, we're not going to do that, right? Because again, this is not an isolated biblical occurrence, an isolated biblical moment, but rather this idea of God having one mediator between us and Him, namely His Son, is a biblical theme, meaning it permeates the entirety of the Scripture. As, as you'll recall what Luther said, Jesus is not only the center of scripture but he is its circumference he is all of it and so how does the rest of scripture point to this unique exclusive and sufficient savior let's do a quick run through and it, it is going to be quick so i apologize beforehand but first we'll go to genesis 3 right immediately after adam and eve sin god speaks directly to adam and eve but he also speaks directly to the serpent that deceived them. And this is what he says in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, so what do we learn from Genesis chapter 3? We learn a few things. First, we learn that the struggle between man and the deceiver, Satan, would be one that is ongoing, right? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and not just between you and the woman, but between her offspring and your offspring, right? So the struggle will be ongoing. 
going. But he also promises that at some point, there would be an offspring of the woman who would come, and Satan, in his attack on him, would get a lick in. Right? He, would, he would bite that offspring's heel. But that that offspring would in turn crush the head of the serpent. That one day, that enmity would end because an offspring of the woman would make an end to it. This is God's first promise of a coming unique and exclusive and sufficient Savior. Next we go to Deuteronomy where God tells Moses that he will raise up a prophet like Moses from among Israel. He says this in Deuteronomy 18 starting in verse 15. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you, this is Moses speaking, a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then God says this in verse 19, and whoever will not listen to my words that he, the prophet that is coming, shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so certainly in this moment, this, this promise of God to the people of Israel that he will be with them through his voice speaking in the voice of the prophets is referring to all of the Old Testament prophets, all of those books that are written before Jesus comes where men are telling the people of God everything that is good, right, and true about God, always reminding them of those things. But many in Israel also read this text in particular and many other texts throughout the Old Testament as a promise that at some point there would be a final prophet who is sufficient in all that he has to say, meaning that he will tell us comprehensively everything that is good, right, and true, everything that God wants us to know. And we see this again in Isaiah 53, who is himself a prophet. He prophesies of a unique suffering servant whose suffering would be sufficient to make us right. right? We, we hear this particular set of verses read a lot when we get close to Christmas time. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. This is talking to us about Jesus who would one day come. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. And we see this again in Luke, where after Jesus' death, there's two men walking along the road, and they're in disbelief. 
They're in disbelief because Jesus of Nazareth, this great prophet, is now dead. And Jesus comes to them. And He comes up alongside them and walks with them. And in that moment, they don't recognize Him for who He is. And as they're talking, as their conversation continues, they mention that they had hoped that Jesus was this Messiah, this one who would come and redeem Israel. But now that he was dead, that wasn't possible. And so in this moment, they feel duped, right? They feel like, man, we we must have misread the signs. Jesus isn't who we thought he was. And in that moment, Jesus finally reveals who he is. And this is what he says to them in Luke 24, starting in verse 25. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, namely his death, and enter into his glory, God's glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so in this moment of utter confusion, of two men who think they understood the promises of God, but now can't see them because Jesus has died. Jesus says, you're foolish. Wake up. Look, it's me. I needed to suffer these things so that we might enter into the glory of God. Now let me show you, beginning with Moses, whom we just read both in Genesis and Deuteronomy, and into the prophets, including Isaiah, which we just read, and all of Scripture, the things concerning myself, the things concerning Jesus. And so in the greatest Bible study ever delivered in human history, Jesus explains how all of the Scriptures are telling us about Him. And so here, Jesus is making it clear that the totality of God's Word is a witness concerning Him. And so Scripture, our ultimate authority, is telling us that we have, again, a unique, exclusive, and sufficient Savior and mediator in Jesus. And so we need no other mediator. We don't need a priest. We don't need a saint. We don't need a prayer. We We have all that we need in Jesus. And we've gained access to Jesus by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and all of Scripture is pointing us to Christ alone. Now some of us might be sitting in the room this morning and thinking, Marshall, none of what you're telling me this morning is new or novel. I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, That's great. I'm thankful for the reminder, but what else? Well, the reality is, brothers and sisters, that although this may sound familiar to us, and although, again, we might mentally assent to everything that we've said, the, the, the reality is that throughout the history of now two millennia of the Christian church, and, and really if you want to go back before that to the people of God in the Old Testament, our history is riddled with instances, moments of 
an utter willingness to compromise. To say we believe something, but then by our actions and by our words, contradict that very thing we say we believe. And I think there's a few ways that, one, we can know if we're compromising, and that will at the same time tell us what happens when we compromise. And they surround essentially the three words that I've been using to describe Jesus for us this morning. Here's, here's how we can know if we're beginning to compromise, and then we'll talk about what happens if we do. And this is very simple. If it if we begin to say that Jesus wasn't unique, then we're, we're compromising. And here, here's what I mean by that. When we say, we may say that Jesus is not unique. We may say that there are other ways to get to God. So Jesus is my way. I trust in Him. I believe in Him. But I believe that your way will get you there. So we're cool. Again, in that moment, we're saying that Jesus is who He says He is, and yet we're saying He's not unique in what He says and in what he does. Here's another way that we might compromise. We might say that Jesus wasn't exclusive. And so yes, we can get to God through Jesus, but we can also just try our best to be a good person. Because Jesus will look at that and say, you know what? If Jesus is exclusive, he'll look at our, our, our efforts in good faith and say, you know what? He gave it a good college try. And so let's let him in anyway. Or we might compromise by saying that Jesus wasn't sufficient. And so yes, Jesus opened the door to a relationship with God, but we have to work really, really hard not only to walk through that door, but to make sure that by our conduct we remain acceptable within the confines of the room beyond that door. Because if we don't work really hard and if we don't work really hard to make sure that we maintain our acceptability in God's sight, then He might kick us out back through that door and He might shut it forever. And so Jesus' work wasn't sufficient. Yes, He did something for us, but He didn't do everything for us. And so what you'll notice about all of these compromises is that none of them claim to be heresy, wrong belief. Right? And yet heretics, wrong teachers, never claim to distort the biblical and the ancient faith that we have set before us this morning. Instead, they claim that they are making the faith more palatable, more pliable to the spirit of the age, the, the current cultural realities. And they believe that in so doing, well, we're just we're removing barriers to faith. We're making Jesus less awkward or a favorite word. We're making Jesus more relevant. And so the descent into compromise, the descent into wrong belief, heresy, is gradual. And it's often not a wholesale abandonment of Christian belief, but rather a muddying mixture of Christian belief and current cultural beliefs that we've been raised in. 
meaning that there are things that we are predisposed to believe based on how we've been raised and based on the culture that we're surrounded by that rather than allowing those things to be shaped, molded, and subdued by God's word, we instead bring those to bear on God's word so that it's more comfortable, so that it's more palatable. And so that might be, again, how we compromise, but then what, what happens when we do? Well, if we compromise on solus Christus or Christ alone, what will happen is that we'll have a theology that is at first imprecise, right? You got some of it right, but then ultimately it will turn wishy-washy, meaning it'll be vague. Then it'll be populist, meaning it'll be open to our whims as a people, rather than to God's firm and unchanging word. And then finally, it will become trivial or of little value. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And so essentially what Paul is saying in that moment is that if we try to add even 1% to the complete and sufficient exclusive, unique work of Christ, then we not only nullify God's grace, but we make Jesus' death mean nothing. So Paul and the Reformers 1,500 years later are calling on Christian communities to confess this faith with courage and fidelity against the current cultural philosophies of our day. Whether those philosophies come from within the church like in the days of the Reformers, or from outside of the church, which is probably closer to our reality now. And we're to speak clearly and without reservation about the absolute uniqueness, exclusivity, and sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all things. And if we don't, we'll end up, as a famous theologian said, proclaiming and worshiping a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning we confess, according to God's word, that God's grace comes to us uniquely, exclusively, sufficiently, through faith in Christ alone. And when we confess grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, we have the unique, exclusive, and sufficient mediator who came to make us right before God, but we also have much more. And this is where we're going to try to talk about some aspects of who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf, and it's going to be so minuscule in compared to how glorious he really is. But there's three ways I want us to see Jesus, Christ alone, working on our behalf. And one we've already talked about at length, right? It was, the, it was the essential question of the Reformation, who mediates between God and man. When we trust in Christ alone, we have the great priest, the great high priest, as Hebrews calls him. The Heidelberg Catechism, a, a catechism is just a, uh, a, a way to teach theology, right? Simple questions and responses. But the, the Heidelberg Catechism says this, by the sacrifice of Jesus' body, he has redeemed us 
and now makes continual intercession with the Father for us. Continual intercession with the Father for us. So that means that Jesus right now is in God's ear and he's saying, Marshall is yours because he is mine. He is right because I have made him righteous. All that you owe to me, God, you owe to him because I have purchased him with my own blood. And if you want, you can substitute my name for yours this morning if you're a Christian. In the words of the 1689 Baptist Confession, because of our estrangement or separation from God and the imperfection of our services at best, we need His priestly office to reconcile us to God and render us acceptable to Him. And so this this doctrine of solus Christus insists on Christ as our only mediator because in Christ there are two things that no matter how hard we try to do, we can never do, and yet they must be done if we're to be saved. And the first thing is this. He satisfies the justice of God through obedience to the law. All of us are lawbreakers and therefore fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3 tells us. And so we need someone else to obey the law perfectly for us in thought, in word, and in deed. And Jesus did that for 33 years in this world as our substitute. And then the second thing that we can never do is pay the price for our sin. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And it's a death that is both physical, spiritual, and eternal. Only Jesus could compress the eternity of sin's payment in his suffering and death on Calvary's cross. Only he could do that. Voluntarily suffering, dying on behalf of us as sinners, paying the penalty for our sins, taking away our guilt, and freeing us from the dominion of sin, the power of the devil, and the consequences of sin and death. All of this to reconcile us as ungodly sinners to a rightly holy and offended God. Romans 5.10 says that when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And so in Christ alone, we have the great high priest. But in Christ alone, we also have the great prophet. As we saw in Deuteronomy, in Christ, we have the prophet who was promised. The prophet that we need to instruct us in all of the things of God, everything that is good, everything that is right, and everything that is true are found in Christ alone so as to scatter our blindness and our ignorance in Him. Again, the Heidelberg Catechism calls Jesus our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. Meaning that as the great prophet, Jesus is the only one who fully reveals God and what he's up to in the world. And he is the source of all that is good and true. And only he speaks God's words. And we find this for us in Hebrews chapter 1. Starting in verse 1 and working through um, verse 3. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here, actually, we see hints of not only Jesus as our priest, right, who made purification for our sins, but we also see him as great prophet who tells us all of God's words to us. But we also see that in Christ alone, we have not only a great priest and a great prophet, but we have a great king. Christ is the king of an eternal kingdom that encompasses all that we see and know. He is the ruler of all, as Hebrews tells us. And again, the Heidelberg Catechism says this, Christ is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation which he has purchased for us. What does that mean? It means that as the all-powerful of the universe, yes, Jesus governs us, but that's not where I want to focus. Yes, Jesus governs us, but he also defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of the salvation that he himself purchased on our behalf. And so that's what Peter means when in 1 Peter, he tells us that we have an inheritance that is being guarded by God himself. And that's why he tells us that that inheritance is not something that can be taken from us. It's being guarded by the all-sovereign of the universe. He preserves us and he defends us in the enjoyment of salvation that he purchased through Jesus. That's also what Romans means when it tells us that there's no power, there's no principality, there's no angel, there's no demon, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of Christ. In Christ alone we have a great priest, in Christ alone we have a great prophet, in Christ alone we have the great king. And so brothers and sisters, as we conclude this morning, Hopefully what we see is that in Christ we have all that we need and more. He is uniquely, exclusively, and sufficiently ours and for us and for our salvation. And so the only response for us this morning is to rejoice in God's great provision for us. To rejoice. Calvin says that because of Christ alone, we as Christians may patiently pass through this life with its misery, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing, that our King will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare is ended and we are called to triumph. Such is the nature of His rule that He shares with us all that He received from the Father, and now He arms and equips us with His power, adorns us with His beauty and magnificence, and enriches us with His wealth. Brothers and sisters, we get those things in Christ alone. And for those of us that are not Christians in the room, here's what I would say to you. Yes, the truth about Jesus is exclusive. 
and in a culture where inclusiveness is the only orthodoxy and exclusiveness is the only heresy, that's hard to hear. But he is the only way to salvation. He's the only way to deal with the brokenness that's inside you. He's the only way to mediate a relationship and restore it between you and God. He is the only way to right and restore the relationships between you and others. He is exclusive. He is unique. But He is sufficient for all of those troubles. And what's wonderful about Jesus is that yes, His He is exclusive, but his invitation is inclusive. The ransom that he paid was for all. It was for all who would believe in him, all who would call upon him, and it is sufficient for all who would call upon him. And so it is my hope this morning that that you would see that he is more than an example to emulate, more than a martyr who is heroic, more than a psychotherapist who can heal your psychological wounds and he's more than a santa who doles out health and wealth at our request he is the sovereign lord of the universe who has come condescended demeaned himself in order to make your relationship with god right and this is why every week we go to the scriptures because it is there that we see the person and the work of jesus most clearly revealed Jesus is everything to us, and we want him to be everything to you too. For your great joy and enjoyment, but also for God's great glory, which we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together in your name. And Lord, we thank you that you have made reconciliation for us. So if we're Christians in the room this morning, God, we rejoice and we celebrate that reality. And Lord, if we're not Christians in the room this morning, I pray, Father, that you would challenge us to belief. God, that maybe for the first time this morning, we would see that in us there is only lack, but in Jesus there is only wealth and sufficiency to be had. And that you are inviting us You are inviting us to place our faith in you. Thank you for the gift of grace in Jesus and the faith with which we believe in him. All of that is from you and we receive it as such. Lord, we thank you for all good things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.